Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. I have sounds. Yep, we're all good. All right. Hey, everyone. It's episode 197. Today is March 11th, 2021. This is Human Factors Cast. I am your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today uh, by Mr. Blake Arnstorf. Howdy, howdy. How's everybody doing across the World Wide Web? Across this World Wide Web. Blake, I'm good. Uh, we got a we got a story that Blake is like bursting at the seams to talk about today. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, firefighting, uh, fighting wildfires uh, using better data through this company called Cornea. Uh, and, and, uh, just for everyone's awareness, we have a programming note here. Um, you know, we, we've been pretty cryptic on social media lately. Uh, there is a, uh, uh, some cryptic tweets about four, one, uh, it's April 1st. Uh, there's not, it's not a big joke or anything. There's, there's something coming. And if you do some math, you'll understand, um, you know, this is episode 197, uh, April 1st is in three weeks, you know, just kind of put two and two together anyway we're really excited about all that uh more more info to come uh, we are starting to stream across more platforms so if you're listening to this and want to watch us or hang out with us uh we actually have you know several platforms in which you can do that and chat with us and we're trying to Im- implement that kind of live element to the show so if there's any chats that come out here uh we can bring those into the show um would love to hear from you. Uh, so with that, Blake, I, I got to know what's going on in your world because it's been a couple weeks. We had Frank on the show last week, and and uh, what's going on with you, man? That's right, man. I totally forgot that I had missed last week, so this is good to be back then. Uh, man, it's been a kind of insane week. You've blown my mind by the fact that in three weeks it's April on top of in three weeks we have, we'll have do, done 200 episodes of Human Factors Cast. I know there's like oh, bonus yeah. episodes that are over yeah. that, but that's <laughs> nuts. That's so much. Uh, but anyway, yeah. I mean, not a whole lot's been going on. I definitely had a strange interaction, basically with myself, while listening to a podcast. A little bit of like star shock, if you will. Oh, that's weird. So a good, a good. I don't. I can't remember how long to, how long I've been listening to this podcast, but it's about drumming because that's where really where I'm spending a lot of my personal time. And it's got these two hosts that are really big in the drum kind of teaching world, right? And so I'm a part of their Patreon, which. It's been fun to be a part of their community and things like that. But a perk of that is being able to ask questions of people on the podcast and get them to answer it. And so I found myself in the kitchen the other week and dropped my phone as they said my name hilariously correct and read out a question of mine on their podcast. And it was one of those moments where I was like, man, I've seen these guys all over the Internet. I've even interacted with them in Zoom calls, but it still kind of blew my mind. Um and then it kind of made me think back to people who have reached out to me on LinkedIn and been surprised that I would reply or surprised that I would, you know, give them my phone number or email address so that we could set up a time to actually chat because sometimes through text or whatever, it's not that it's not as good as kind of like talking in person or working ideas out in your head. So it was one of those t- things where I wanted to make sure that if people enjoy the show and they feel hesitant to reach out to myself and i'm assuming nick you feel the same way that i hope that you do reach out to us because i one of my favorite parts of doing this podcast is the interaction with the community outside of what we do and getting questions like for instance last week i got a question about a program that somebody was looking into that i had been a part of in my past and so it was awesome to banter back and forth about that kind of stuff but I, I don't know. I want people to feel like they can always approach you and I. And I know right now we're not having conferences and so people can't see us in yeah. person. But please feel free to reach out to us through Slack, through Patreon, if you're on the Patreon and subscribe with us or through, you know, LinkedIn or any of the social media outlets. Because I think we I think I say this for both of us. We want to be here to support the human factors community or the UX design community as it's needed. Cause I think Nick and I have a lot of interesting experience and different backgrounds and can, you know, just want to kind of pay it forward if you will. So, yeah, I think, Thanks for mentioning that, Blake, because, I mean, like I said, like we're, we're trying to expand our community and, and have that live aspect of it. But really, it is just trying to form more connections with all of you, because uh, the, one of the unspoken uh, kind of tenets of the show is to make human factors accessible to, um, you know, not just 
not just other people and human factors, but to everybody, right? We want to make it fun. We want to make it entertaining, and we don't want to hide it behind uh, language that uh, is gatekeeping in any way. So thank you for bringing that up, Blake. Any other any other last things with that? No, that's kind of it. It's just I want to make sure that we continue to, as we continue to kind of grow, because obviously we're trying to push the envelope in a bunch of different directions, that we kind of still are staying true to what we started with, right? Which is just get human factors knowledge out there and like form a small community of people that we can interact with and help kind of answer questions, grow their career, whatever it may be. Yeah, for sure. Well, man, I got, I got to say, um, I, I have, uh, in addition to the community, there's, there's some secrets I've been keeping from our community and it hurts uh, because I, I'm really excited to talk about all of it. We talked about it just before the show. Um, it's good news. It's good news. It's it's a happy surprise. Uh, so hopefully, you know, you all will will uh, join us for that surprise. Uh, like I said, there's some cryptic tweets or some cryptic posts out there about, you know. Uh, what is it? April 1st. So, uh, you know, that might be a day to tune into the podcast. We don't know. We don't know for sure. But anyway, it's there. Could be a good uh, one. I, <laughs> I got to talk about something else, man. So Restream. This is the thing that we're actually using to broadcast, uh, simulcast across several different websites. And, um, you know, I I wanted to give you kind of a heads up about this before we went on. But this, this, uh, this program is kind of incredible. Um, you know, like so. So, if any of you are thinking about streaming, or if you are thinking about um, finding a way to reach several different audiences at one time, Restream is a fantastic tool. And so, we're actually on the free tier right now. And the only real uh, bad thing about it is that it has, you know, a watermark. But whatever, we're using their software, and that's fair. Could they be also, worse, right? You know, in the description, I think they say it's powered by Restream or whatever too, and that's fine. The 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 ease of use that you get, like, I want to talk about the human factors of this thing. Cause this is amazing. So, you know, you can, you can select several different sources. Think on the free version, you can have up to six people on it. Right. So right now we have you and me and we have my shared desktop, although it's not live right now. So people can see you and I, um, and you can, you can select a couple different, um, you know, ways of displaying. Right. So now we're close <laughs> up and then you can have, you know, potentially, uh, another split here. If, um, you know, like, let's say I wanted to be the main focus or Blake That's wanted to be the main focus. Yeah. So, I mean, there's different ways of displaying this information, and it's actually really quite cool um, and super easy to use. You can also change some of the, like, captions at the bottom, and it looks really professional, right? Like, we have stream starting soon here. I know this is kind of boring to listen to if you're on the um, on the audio version, but it my point here with all this is that there's a lot of ways to manipulate this information very easily and, uh, you know, to reach a lot of people very easily because you're across multiple audiences. Uh, so this is, <laughs> this is a really cool tool, man. Like, I I was kind of blown away with the ease of use because, um, pulling back the curtain here behind the scenes, you, Blake, had actually set up an OBS, which, uh, remind me what that stands for, but um, OBS pretty, is... It's just like open broadcast software. And I think yeah, I had it done it through Streamlabs, so it was even more complex, I guess. Yeah, so we had set up a Streamlabs uh, thing behind the scenes, and and what happened last week was that uh, Blake had something come up. He couldn't attend the show, so I had Frank sub in for him. Um, and special shout out to Frank. Thank you. That was a great episode. Um, and what happened then was, oh no, I don't have all the OBS materials, and so I need to rapidly figure out how I can do this um, because we did want to slowly, you know, kind of permeate into other media. So last week was, I think, the first week that we were on Twitch. This is the first week that we're on Twitter. Um, and it allows you to do that. Like, we're, tr- we're trying each scale, uh, you know, we're trying to scale up weekly. Um, and and it's, it's kind of interesting. So it'll allow you to change all the titles and everything all at once. You can do all that without having to go into each. Um, it's, it's a ton of fun it, to, like, use. And I'm actually really happy with it. It actually brings in all the chat. Um, and and consolidates them from all this stuff. It allows you to actually show things on the, you know, like if anyone were to chat, that we could actually show their comment on the um, on the stream. It's it's so cool. It has a lot of tools. Uh, we'll put a link to it below, or it will put a link for us. I think. <laughs> yeah, I'll um, let you know. <laughs> it'll let you know we're using it. But I just wanted to like give them a shout out. It's a, it's a super easy to use. Um, 
stream, you know, and they have like a couple uh, fantastic built in tools like uh, being able to specify what theme you want. Um, and for the folks that are actually watching right now, they're being treated to this stuff actually changing live in the moment. Um, so like there's some really cool tools that they have, uh, but like they come stock with like, and this sounds like an advertisement for them uh, kind of, but they're not paying us. Um, <laughs> I'm loving it though, because this is so much simpler than the stuff that was going on in like Streamlabs, of like setting up scenes and stuff. Like this is way, yeah. way faster. It's it's pretty cool. It's pretty flexible, and uh, you know, highly recommend for anyone who wants to get into that streaming game. You know, like we're we're here, uh, we're just kind of figuring this out for the first time. Um, you know, we've been and uh, for anyone who's joining us uh, on other platforms, we've been an audio podcast for almost two hundred episodes, and you know, we're we're we tried a video thing around episode one hundred, and we couldn't quite. Uh, keep up with that just because of the nature of how we were doing that and so you know again we're expanding and i think this is a fantastic tool makes it very easily very very easy to use very accessible to a lot of folks um so again you know if you're if you're joining us on on one of these uh video platforms thank you this is this is really kind of making the show um you know or, or making this aspect of it of using this this software uh worth it for us so um yeah, with that, uh, I don't know. Do you have any other anything to say about Streamlabs before we move on here? Man, it, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever go back to using Streamlabs because I've used it for some of my other projects that I'm currently doing, and I might switch to Restream <laughs> and see see if it just like provides a much easier yeah. thing. Because I'm all about like making this easy when you're like doing video editing and like reposting stuff. And it looks like Streamlabs is, or Restream has really nailed some of it. Yeah, man, it's super cool. All right, well, uh, why don't we go ahead and get into this next part of the show? Yes, this is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. This could be anything. This could be medical, transportation, security, robotics, AI, you name it. As long as it relates to the field of Human Factors, it is fair game for Blake and myself to sit here and talk about on the show. Blake, what do we have up first this week? All right, so up first this week, we're talking we're talking about the application of human factors in firefighting. So it looks like wildfires in the American West have particularly acute been acute in the past years in states like California, California mostly due to hotter conditions driven by climate change, decaying grid infrastructure that is can lead to sparks and tinderboxes of trees and foliage ripe for conflagration. So after years of bruising firefighters, some startups have been exploring how to improve the firefighter response. Cornea is one of those startups. And so Cornea's idea is to meld geographical weather and historical fire data into a machine learning model that can augment fire frontline firefighters with better guidance on where to push forward and when to retreat in the midst of a blaze. The startup has two main products that it's pushing forward and with and that they're looking to launch later in this year. So the first product really is focused around delivering better situational awareness around a subject known as suppression difficulty index. So for instance, a particular location could have wind or water conditions that might accelerate a fire and endanger responders if they're not actually careful. And the other product is much more focused on what's called potential control lines. So these are locations where a fire break or other action could potentially push the fire backwards. So this is kind of insane, Nick. I mean, we've seen so much in the past couple of years of the application of just data. And now we're seeing it kind of being applied to a big problem here in California and in the American West, but to kind of a domain that we don't see a whole lot of support for, and this is firefighting. Yeah. Um, so so let's, let's start with the human factors application, uh, because I feel like that's what we're here for. Um, I want to talk about what it means to be a firefighter and and kind of some of the challenges that they face, right? So for firefighters, they're looking typically um, at less than two years experience, uh, you know, and, and you know, for, for the last 13 years or so, they're looking at about two years of experience fi fighting fires. Um, you know, you have, you're, you're wearing... As, as a firefighter, you're wearing so many hats, um, trying to multitask, trying to do all these tasks. And there's generally there's poorly defined leadership. I mean, obviously, there's a chief, but 
you know, in, in these situations, there's a lot going on. And so people kind of just need to take it up upon themselves to get something done because lives are on the line. Um, you, you have, um, you know, you basically have this, uh, close calls, near misses on the job with, with some of these, uh, structures that are burning. Um, they have to make these mental workloads, uh, happen really fast. Um, and so there's like a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's going on, right? Um, you have, you know, escape routes and planning those escape routes and sing in buildings. Um, you have a lot of stuff going on, a lot of stuff going on here. Uh, so let's, let's break down what Cornea is doing. So they are, um, they're, they're bringing forward this, um, this system. There's, there's two products that they, that Blake mentioned here that they are trying to push, right? There's the suppression difficulty index and the potential control line. So those are the two, right? Yeah, those are the two big like flagship pieces of which they're you know integrating data into their machine learning model and basically spitting out things that a firefighter could use in real time. Um, so both of these look at, like you said, kind of your suppression difficulty index and then potential control lines. And I think this is a good place to, again, think about it from the human factors perspective and why something like this is so important for integration into firefighters kind of toolkit that they have out in the field is much like in the military domain here you've got a dynamic situation that's unfolding and the predictability is it exists but oftentimes there's a lot of things that can change like while you're in the field and you could have a fire completely consume your entire group of firefighters out there or have conditions change so quickly that you have to make a different escape route if you will so being able to apply data in situations where you may have a leg up in this case and you're not, you know, relying on only somebody maybe flying overhead to give you any kind of information. So I think these kind of products hopefully will get continually integrated into, I, I would imagine, some of the stuff that firefighters either take with them as part of their kit or thinking really futuristically if this was starting to be built into some of the, the things they have to wear. Kind of like if you if you could think of, you know, integrating Microsoft HoloLens into the face gear they would have to wear to be able to see this stuff in real time yeah let's talk about what they use today right we talked a little about about some of the challenges they experienced today let's talk about what they use today right now they're using paper maps and markers um you know and and yeah right so it is just because they need to have this stuff available to them um because you know if it doesn't break right at the time when you can't have things break then you need that stuff available to you um, so basically the, the way this is going to help the, the, or sorry, cornea, their products is going to help them in the field is, um, you know, kind of have uh, a larger impact on, on some of these fire operation centers where some of these strategic decisions get made, right? A lot of these, if you think, if you think about firefighting, it's, it's, it's probably a lot like command and control. You have, um, you know, the decision centers, uh, the operation centers where they're making these big decisions, where they're sending in planes uh, that are doing drops. Um, then they're also kind of giving firefighters that top down perspective of what's going on in terms of a system with the fire. Do they need to move out of the way? Um, do they need to sort of do a controlled burn ahead of the line so that way it doesn't continue on in a certain direction? What way is the wind blowing? That's what the operation center is doing. And so what Cornea is doing is they're bringing all this information into those data centers um, and, and that will help them invest some of these firefighting resources. Absolutely. Yeah. And man, could you imagine trying to work in a, like a dynamic environment like this where you, you basically have to, you have to rely on things going wrong for your company to grow and understand the market a little bit better. Cause it's, it's not something as straightforward as you can go like test a bunch of this stuff out any time of year like you almost have to be pulling data from specific events and then hoping it can be you know refactored inside of their algorithm to provide you know useful data in the moment for seasons like this where we experience a lot of fires so as a company right. that's growing from the very beginning that's a pretty intense challenge and you would have to really take a pretty serious systems of systems approach to understand how to tackle the problems they are yeah i mean there's 
like like what you said, um, a, a company like this who really strives to have <laughs> this data ready and available for emergency situations, I think there's there's two things here. Let's talk about them. So one is what data do they have ahead of time or what data can they pull uh, and test effectively right now? And that's the, the suppression difficulty index, right? So we're talking about, um, you know, you, you, you can... All you need really for that is an input of where a fire is, and it pulls data from things like water conditions uh, or like wind or uh, humidity, that type of thing. And it will tell you basically how likely uh, or basically um, where it, it kind of maps where the fire could go uh, or dangerous zones when fighting a fire. Uh, within a specific geographic location, right? So if you're in a hill, if you're if you're right up next to a hill, um, and there's like a, you know, a, a a lake or something right before it hits that hill, well then it's unlikely that it's going to jump over onto the hill and burn up, you know. So that's one thing, and that's information that they have already. All they need is the placement of a fire. Um, so that type of information already included in the system. Then you also have the potential control lines. And this is where, um, you know, I think this is much more reactive to a situation depending on the live updates of a fire. And they could do simulations to try to account for this. But I think, um, you know, that they have uh, some of uh, this. This is kind of like that controlled burn that I was talking about where you have um, uh, this type of data would would indicate to you where you're going to have the most success. Or at least that's how I'm understanding it. Is that how you're understanding it, Blake? Yeah, I mean, that's basically what I'm getting from what they provided here. Um, unfortunately, I know very little about how these things are fought, which makes me want to dive into it because it seems like there's a lot going on in terms of the data you need to take in as you go into a situation like this. But yeah, I mean, the, your description makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and you did bring up that challenge, right? That they, they are... Rep- uh, sort of reliant on this emergency data. Um, and so you can test and test and test and simulate, but until you actually have um, a disaster occur, uh, that is when they're going to get that real-world data that they can act on, right? Um, yeah. One interesting point that's brought up in throughout this article, too, is thinking about your end user. So if we rewind a few minutes ago, I was talking about like, oh, how cool would it be if you stuck the stuff inside of a HoloLens and you integrated that into their actual suits and stuff like that. But I think one thing to consider that me getting you know far outside the box uh, did not take into account is who's the actual end user and how are they used to operating and is an overburden of technology going to help or hinder them in this kind of case where it it seems like a lot of the end users they've talked to they would rather just okay great this is awesome that you can crunch all of this data and make it useful for us but i just want something that's going to be very simple for me to interact with and in this case it seems like at least some of the managing partners from cornea are saying that that actually ends up being a pdf for most firefighters that's all they really want it's just something they can take in remember and then use in the moment like you said, I mean, they're doing a lot of this stuff with just paper maps and markers. So I, I can only imagine, like, if you don't want to add a bunch of extra haul to the gear you have to use, this is an awesome way to go. Yeah, and I think the more, you know, I think the focus, the primary focus is on those operation centers. Um, they are the ones that have most of the information at their fingertips. Um, and being able to supplement the information that they do have uh, with some of those additional data sets is going to be tremendously valuable in helping them uh, sort of plan out how to combat some of these uh, fires, right? So I think there's a lot to look forward to here. I think this is, um, let's see, I'm looking at the Cornea website right now, um, but basically they're they're kind of saying, look, like every fire is going to give us more information. We're going to learn from it. We're going to apply it in different ways that we didn't before. So, I mean, that's, that's already right there, just a, um, you know, a, a great way to think about things. And, and it, it goes back to that whole issue of we need disastrous data to prevent disasters in the future. Um, yeah, I don't know. 
It's an awesome outlook that they have, though, because basically, could you imagine, like, in the, in the downtime of after, like, the season that goes on, you could start running, you know, simulations and putting models together for how some of this stuff has panned out over the last year and, you know, years past that you have access to. So I think this is one of those cases where watching machine learning grow and get more sophisticated as it kind of gets better data will be really beneficial to your like your end operator. And I think this this yeah. may be one of those times where we're marking, you know, how things are done now and how they're going to evolve in 10 years will be completely different. And maybe we'll be able to handle fires in a much different kind of way than we have in the past, just based off yeah, the data, the, which is nuts. The piece of this that's interesting to me is, um, you know, we talked a lot about sort of what this means for fighting fires but the thing that i keep coming back to and i'm looking for I'm, I'm truth be told i was stalling just now just to look at their website to see what the output of this data might look like to a firefighter or to one of the people in the operations center and i don't see anything like what does this actionable output look like um i would imagine that in a case like this you have uh, so, like, is it like Palantir where you have, um, an aggregate of data and then it has like a course of action that you can click on that tells you all the things that need to happen in order for that course of action to complete? Um, or, or is it something simpler or, and how does that information delivered? Is it sent via notification to the firefighter's cell phones? How do they use, how do they use those cell phones when they're in all those gear? I'm sure they have other devices on them. How do those notifications get sent to the individual units on the field? Um, and how does it get sent to the data centers and how or the operation centers? How are the operation centers using uh, or, or interacting with those data to form courses of action or are the courses of action already provided to them based on the environmental effects? So I have a lot of questions, Blake. Do you have any answers for me? Well, I think the only thing that they're doing right now, like I, I made that comment about the pdf earlier that's really what they're getting now i mean they're just providing a distilled version of what this kind of software can do in a you know basically almost like if you could think of it as a briefing before you go into a hard situation i'm assuming they still like have contact with like either comms or whatever but it seems like it's at a very early stage where as you've kind of now brought up there's more peripheral technology that's going to have to be added to make this like more of a real-time feel i think this is at this point for this startup and its funding it's just really they're focused on the algorithmic output and making sure it's usable but in terms of what it's going to end up at the end of the day or like what, you know, in five or six years or in five or six months, even in the startup world, will end up being Cordia's end product. I think that's just still in, in definition stage. So what I'm saying here is that Cornea is going to need human factors, engineers, UX design people to figure out this solution, because a lot of that is ultimately going to you know, impact how effective this type of data is, right? You can have all the data in the world, uh, but how it's delivered to the operator and how it's delivered to the people on the ground, that's going to uh, determine... My lights just went off. <laughs> that's going to determine <laughs> kind of how effective that software is. Uh, any other last comments on this one, Blake? No, this was a really great one. I'm glad that the Patreons kind of picked this one out for us. It was fun to see an application in a space that we don't t often talk about and for it to be just basically be machine learning and, and the impact of data was kind of insane. Yeah, I agree. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to break. Uh, we'll be back right after this. How about that? Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in human factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is human factors, etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember... 
It depends. Hey, we're back, and my lights keep going off. I think my son has the controller in the other room. Uh, so, so that's awesome. I, <laughs> no, it's not. It's it's annoying. Oh, it's hilarious. I love it. Uh, yeah. So, um, Patreon. That's a thing that we do. Uh, we have a uh, a Patreon. You can help support us over there if you have the financial means to do so. In re in in uh, kind of return for f- supporting us financially, we have a couple things for you. Uh, we do have another podcast that we do called Human Factors Minute. Man, I look like a vampire right now. <laughs> you do. I'm terrified. We have another thing called Human Factors Minute, and um, that's uh, that's basically where we look all over the internet. We look all over our textbooks. We bring you one minute of very hyper-focused, basically the too-long-didn't-read version of Human Factors, and we throw it in your podcast feed. You get one, uh, one every week. Um, we are hard at work, uh, always making sure those are... Uh, plentiful and lined up for the future so that way if even if we miss a show here on uh on a weekly basis you know something comes up blake and i can't make it at least those are still coming so we have uh we have those for you um and you know they also get a say in the show right we we have our patrons choose the news they are the ones that chose the news story this week um we do that every week so, you know, we come up with kind of a bank of, of stuff that we might be interested in talking about on the show. And then our patrons actually choose that news. And um, it's been really successful so far. We've chosen some, some really great stories. Uh, actually, this week, it was a close um, a close battle between uh, what's going on with the 777's engine and this firefighting story. And, and the firefighting story won. So it was, it was very interesting. Um, with that... I think we get into this next part of the show. It came from. It came from. That's right. It came from Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. Anything is fair game as long as it encourages Blake and I to sit here and have a discussion about human factors with you all. Um, Really quick, I just want to say a huge thank you uh, to our patrons really quick. I didn't do this, but we have honorary Human Factors cast staff. Uh, Michelle Tripp, thank you so much for supporting the show. Uh, patrons like you keep the show running, so we want to thank you all for your continued support. And again, I'm very distracted by what's going on in my apartment at this time. The that lights came are going out on and off. so perfect, though, when you did the It Came From Reddit thing. <laughs> it was so it's, uh, good. Yeah, it's, it's something. You're missing something on the live show if you're not watching it. <laughs> Let's just say this. Okay, so, um, you know, as as patrons, you also get to the front of the line for some of this, um, some of the it came from stuff. So if you want a question on the show, our patrons get front of the line. Uh, but we have questions from Reddit this week. So, Blake, we have uh, we have a couple here. I think we got like five up in here um, and we got time to kill. So why don't we go ahead and get into it? Uh, I'm going to get in, just read this first one here. Um, what questions do you normally ask developers? Uh, this is from Would You Like to Touch from the User Experience subreddit. <laughs> Blake's <laughs> laughing over there. What's yes. the dialogue like when you're collaborating with developers after a kickoff? How much pushback or compromise in there? Blake? They, yeah, that's interesting. So that that's almost like a couple of different t- styles of questions. So for like, what do you ask developers, especially if you're a junior, I think it is good to be super inquisitive with your development team and also ask how they've interacted with other human factors people or design people, just whatever, whatever your role is, ask how they've best interacted with them in the past and how you can, you know, be the most helpful to them. Something as a designer that I like to ask is if they are using some kind of modern framework, what is it so that I know what constraints that I should be designing within and that is a super helpful way to kind of get started. The other part of this, like the deeper level of the question, talking about what's the dialogue like when you're collaborating with other developers after a kickoff and how much pushback or compromise is there. Often I find that you can, avo- you can avoid some of the harsh pushback by understanding the development environment up front. So if this is the beginning of a project, you have a really opportune time to understand what you're working in, what you should be designing towards and kind of what freedoms you have. But there's always going to be compromise for sure. And in some cases, there'll be massive pushback because one thing I think that people forget is to understand the technical constraints of what they're working in. Um, But also our job is often to push the envelope of some of that stuff to, you know, meet user needs and at the same time be meeting business needs. But like any 
relationship, just open communication is your best bet because you may have developers, some that are like, don't like talking to designers and you have to push a little bit more others. They'll be stoked if you want to figure out how to work better with them. So always the best bet, but Nick, what's your kind of experience here? What do you ask developers? Yeah, that's interesting. So I think uh, my relationship with developers is always very much understanding those constraints, like you mentioned, right? Understand the constraints of what they're coding in or, or what the program is built in um, or basically understanding what's possible, right? That's the biggest thing for me is so that way when I, when I do get user feedback, um, I can look at this situation. I can go, okay, well... They need X, Y, and Z, but I know the ideal situation couldn't happen because of limitations with technology or the framework that they're using. And so uh, I'm going to work with the developer to try to get as close as we could. What's, you know, like it's, it's that whole picking your battles. Um, and, and just in terms of, uh, you know, actually people skills with developers, you want to have that, right? You want to be able to have a conversation with them and understand. So, I guess I'm rambling here, but there's two things that you need to understand, right? You need to understand enough about the framework, not like coding or anything, but enough of what's possible. And opening that dialogue with the developer will give them that respect uh, for you because you are taking the time to understand what's possible and you're not going to throw something over the fence that is going to drive them insane. Um, so uh, in terms of pushback, when you deliver something, um, to the developers, obviously that happens. Uh, it's like, oh, well, I can't do this. And it's like, well, do you, uh, can you not do that because it's hard or can you not do that because it's impossible? Um, and that's a trickier battle uh, because you want what's best for the user, but you also uh, don't want to cause anybody any extra heartache um, or, or heartburn or you know whatever. So I think... That's more of the interesting question for me is is like how do you come to those compromises when something's possible but not easy to do from a development perspective? Uh, and I think the answer is, again, pick your battles. You want to do those things um, in situations where it's going to be a night and day change for the user where, it, you know, if, if there might be a separate situation where you'll be okay if if it's not exactly the thing that you want that might be one compromise that you can make there uh i don't know any other uh any other thoughts on how to interact with a developer blake it's kind of funny what you brought up there like that that difference between is it impossible or is it really hard and like that can also mean is it just going to take so long that it doesn't make any sense to do which I don't recommend this for everybody because if you don't have the interest in it, it can suck and it's a slog. But I I honestly became more on the development side because at one point I had a feeling that I was being told that something couldn't be done when it could be. And I've discovered that to be the case in a lot of situations. And it's, it's not that I use that to my advantage to say like, yeah, you totally can and here's how you could do it. I think what's important about understanding development at a little bit of a deeper level and how it could benefit you as a designer anyway is, okay, if I understand the framework and I understand some of the limitations, meaning what's going to require custom written code, I can keep that in the back of my mind. And like Nick has said, if you end up with you know stuff that's just going to break the experience of whatever you're doing or from a functional perspective, like somebody won't be able to do their job at all in the right way, then that's the time to kind of argue for that stuff. And knowing what can be done within a framework and what is going to cause you custom code and kind of thinking about those design solutions in both areas, if you if you get a developer or development team coming back at you saying that this can't be done, having kind of a secondary solution can be really, really helpful. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Uh, let's get into this next one here. Yeah, we still got some time. All right. So uh, do your past experiences shape your future opportunities? Now, Blake, you hinted at, at this one before the show that this was serendipitous that this one came up, right? Uh, I'm going to read this here. Uh, this is from Week Appointment nine week appointment nine uh from the user experience subreddit here do your past experiences shape your future opportunities i go on to write i recently got hired as a product designer for a small ux agency who does work for fintech 
uh, slash lending companies. It's not my ideal role or industry, and I would have I would have preferred working in house, but I'm hungry for any experience, uh, and the pay is great for entry level. I just can't be afford I can't afford to be picky right now. I'm super grateful for the opportunity, but I wanted to work in the uh, B2C consumer facing products. Uh, my dream company is somewhere like Spotify or Netflix, uh, but I didn't have any Fang internships, and it was hard enough to get this position. My question is. Since this role is in the fintech space, would it be harder for me to get into product design at one of my dream companies since the domains are so different? How do I use the experiences I get from this job and make it relevant and useful enough to be hired in any of my dream companies? I know it's a lot easier to get hired if you have relevant past experiences in the industry you're applying for. Also, love to hear your experiences on working for design agencies as opposed to working in-house. Blake, that's pretty. This is pretty rad. So I totally identify with like having a dream company that you want to work for and feeling like there's no way my experience does not match up. Um, and so in in reality, I can't necessarily provide great insight because I haven't bridged that gap myself. But what I can tell you is, I think re- reading this question, if you were to read it back yourself, you might catch areas that you can you can think about like from your portfolio perspective how you pitch yourself whatever it may be but the biggest thing if you want a job in one of these companies network that's gonna be the easiest way to get you anywhere that you want to go is finding people to interact with that are either have friends that work at spotify or netflix or whatever or just trying to get in contact with people that do work at those companies through you know friends of a friends or through like cold emailing because to be honest, although you don't have experience in the space, what I would be concerned about as a designer in this case is, okay, so I've been working in fintech. I have agency experience. What does that bring somewhere else? And so I, you shouldn't be really limiting yourself or the way you're thinking about like, oh, I've really only de- done fintech designs, and so I'm really good at designing dashboards or whatever it may be. You should still be able to pull the process and tools and your understanding of how to, you know, create requirements for product design based off of interacting with users, stakeholders, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, one of the things to consider is like, think about the job that you want, if it's at Spotify or whatever, and think about the product they create and how your past experience could fit that. And you can always do like fictional case study type things to show your interest in a product and how you would tackle kind of the problem solving behind it. So I totally get the point, and I'm sure it's really it's valid, right? That not having relevant experience in the space can be really hard, but sometimes you have to create those opportunities for yourself. So if that's doing case studies, if it's creating, you know, videos about why, you know, Spotify's experience is great or why there's a lot of design thinking that's gone into the design of it. There's just a lot of different ways you can use your current experience and expertise, it sounds like, to help you leverage that next job that you want. Yeah, um, I think that's mostly right. I think it... Here's here's my thoughts on this. So, yes, past experiences shape future opportunities, uh, but not in the way that you're thinking. Um in my experience, it's less been about the experience that you get on a job and your skill set and that type of thing. It's more of the people that you know in the domain that you're currently working in, right? So let's say you work in the defense industry. You'll know people in that industry who could get you a job somewhere else. And that's going to be an easier transition for you because you're already familiar with the domain. Uh, you don't have to relearn everything. And you know that's, that's kind of the skill set piece of this. Um, but knowing the people in that industry is going to help you get into another job in that industry. Likewise, if you're like in the gaming industry, moving from one company to another is going to be a very easy transition because a um, someone probably you know got a job somewhere else and and you know them and you can ask them for a job and get it there. Um, and uh, you know it, it might be a different story if perhaps you know. You, <laughs> You don't know somebody in that industry. And that's where, you know, what Blake was saying, you you can blindly reach out to somebody, um, but it might not be as uh, easy as you might think to reach out to somebody. There's a lot of people who will just ignore um, things on LinkedIn. Blake is kind of the exception here. Um, 
he will happily sit and chat your ear off about uh, professional development all day. But <laughs> absolutely, I mean, I, I've made like my own side career out of that, so it is what it is. So I mean, like that's that's kind of my perspective there, right? Like, yes, it will, but only because of the people that you know and the the industry that you're in is likely to contain those same people. Um, and that's that's the benefit of going to conferences like HFES or any of the UX conferences is you go and you make those connections and you say, hey, I, oh, I've always wanted to work for Spotify. That'd be awesome. Um, and oh, well, I just so happen to work for Spotify. And then you make that connection and you keep up with them. Um, it's it's kind of a game uh, that you have to play if you want to break out of your industry and into another one. Um, it's not impossible, but it's hard. Uh, and that's kind of where I land. And I don't want to be like a downer over here because it's completely possible. It's just a matter of how much effort do you go into doing it? Because that transition might be more effortless if you're within the same industry. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to have to put in the work and it's going to be a lot of work to swap industries. But I, I, I don't know. I think it's more possible. And I'm, I just caution people to be too worried about, that they wouldn't be able to hack it in another position in another industry or domain. Cause I think yeah. you can, you just, there's things you would have to learn, but I don't know. I'm a big proponent of whether if it's human factors as if it's design, even in the little experience I have in development, it's, it's figuring out how to apply what you already know to a new problem. Yeah. Good. All right. Uh, looks like we got time for maybe two more. So why don't we, why don't we take this next one here? So, um, I am going to actually. I'm going to skip this one. We're going to go to the next one here. Uh, do you? Oh wait, no. This is the one that you wanted to talk about. Never mind. We're going to talk about this one. All right. This one's from the Human Factors subreddit. Uh, this is from Montres, and this is Human Factors integration with AI, artificial intelligence. I'm a psychology student and I'm very new to Human Factors. How can Human Factors help in artificial intelligence? Can I have some articles or examples? Blake, you did some special research on this one. Yeah, okay, so usually I'm facetious about this, but this time I am not being being quite earnest. So this is a this is an area that I know nothing about, but I find very, very interesting. The whole idea of AI versus general AI, and when we get to either one, it blows my mind. And so, like you, I do not really know that much about AI from a human factors perspective, and I can under I can kind of speculate because I've been working as a human factors engineer for a long time, and I've gone through programs for it. But I can I can speculate on areas of research, right, or ways that human factors could impact the design of AI or how people interact with it. But literally from googling just human factors impact on AI design, <laughs> I got so much awesome stuff. <laughs> like there. There's one like ResearchGate article that actually breaks down the kind of like how AI and machine learning uh, research itself and human factors research can coincide, and it's it just it breaks it breaks it down really really well. So the paper is called "Integrating Human Factors in Artificial Intelligence in the Development of Human Machine Cooperation." Which for a lot of people that don't know, definitely in grad school and in like traditional human factors, telepresence and that kind of stuff was really what I was excited about. So this is kind of taking that and putting it on steroids. Um, but I definitely encourage like just seeing what's out there because surprisingly stuff on ResearchGate was actually available in the full article uh, and you could read through the entire thing on the website. Yeah. So um, Google it up, see what you find. And if if you find something interesting and you happen to hear this, please share with the Human Factors Cast Slack because I would love to learn more about AI and its applications. Yeah, I think um, I think generally, right? If you, I, I, again, know nothing about artificial intelligence in the field, um, but I think generally uh, there there's plenty of ways that human factors can um, help with artificial intelligence, especially automated artificial intelligence systems. And we talked a little bit about this during office hours early this week. Um, for anyone unaware, we're doing office hours on Twitch now. So, uh, you know, I sat down and did um, kind of dug through some of the articles that we might pull up on the show. There was an article on, you know, uh, SAE's six levels of automation and um, how the human kind of interacts with each of those individual levels. And so, um, you know, I think at the bare minimum, artificial intelligence 
has different levels, right? And 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 that could be linked in with automation, automated systems, and so that might be one connection, right? And that's just off the top of my head because it's fresh in my mind because we talked about it during office hours earlier this week. Uh, and so, you know, th- that's that's one immediate application that comes to mind. There are plenty of others. Blake mentioned that article. We'll post it in the show notes for you so that way you have it available. Um, I think, you know, this is a... This is a a thing that Blake and I say all the time, but like just Google it, and like it, it's it's a uh, it's absolutely true. Although we understand that like if you're new to the field, you might not understand what is a good source and what isn't, um, and so that question's not so or that that answer is not so cut and dry really. Um, so just Google it is is kind of the bottom line. <laughs> absolutely, look for stuff like uh, Google Scholar hits and anything like a research, research gate, gate or any yeah. pub that'll let you get as far as it, as you can before you hit a paywall, and that's probably a good resource for you. And if you're yeah. if you're still in school, you may have access to more of these periodical periodicals periodicals than like people who don't have memberships. So definitely, kind of be mindful of the stuff you have access to through schooling if you're still there. Yeah, that's that's great uh great feedback there blake i i I think i might still have access to one of mine but i'm not sure it's been nice very cool um all right let's get through these ones uh so uh this next one here is from uh this one's called do you work alone on your project or with other designers this is from autocat on the user experience subreddit i'm curious what the norm is out there so we're talking about norms here yeah norms i think it uh, i'm gonna say it it depends don't do it it does. It does. It definitely depends. My experience has been that I've often worked as a sole designer. I don't think that should be the norm. I think that it it is better to have a diverse set of perspectives um, to help you kind of work through harder problems from a design perspective and you having different levels of experience along a project. Of, of course, like it really comes down to what's afforded and what's, what's kind of able to be funded on a project. But my so my norm is single designer. Uh, I think more of the norm out there tends to be multi designer. Um, but I don't really know, Nick. From your perspective, what what are you seeing as norms, or what have you experienced as your own personal norms? Damn it, Blake. It depends. Um, yeah. And the thing it does is is on on scale and scope of the project. Um, in terms of scale, if you have a large project. Um, that's backed by a corporation the likelihood that you will have a design team that you work with um, and they'll have you know someone that's working on ui elements and someone that's working on interaction and someone that's working on prototyping someone that's managing it all uh, and someone that's doing user research they'll have something like that um then you have sort of uh uh you know, the smaller teams, let's say, maybe maybe a small website or something where you might have one designer that you're interacting with. Um, and that's fine, too. Just understand that they can't do everything unless they're a unicorn. Um, and so, you know, just take extra care to make sure that what you give them is enough for them to do their job, but not so much that it's like, hey, you gotta you gotta build out this icon to be so perfect. Just use something that exists. It doesn't. That's not that right now. No, don't don't worry about that. Um, so that's kind of the norm is that the larger the product project, the bigger the team. The smaller the project, the smaller the team, and maybe one designer. Um, that's kind of what I've experienced. Uh, all right, one more. Let's do it. All right, one more. Here we go. Does it make sense to include an abstract abstract project in my portfolio or in anyone's for that matter? This is from the way the cookie crumbles on the human factor subreddit. Uh, so we got we got some human factors uh, subreddit in here today, and I love it. Um, I love it. Reason why we haven't been covering human factors covered in our pre-show. Go check that out. <laughs> yeah, there All you right. go. Uh, so they go on to write for background. I am going to design research and human factors jobs eventually um starting a master's program soon i took an extension industrial design course on color and material i ended up doing an abstract exercise but recorded my process and got good feedback during the critique sessions i think it really exemplifies how i think and approach the world my other few pieces were actual case studies describing freelance work hiring managers especially um would you include it with the other 
pieces as a, quote, personality piece, uh, but that is still related to industrial design. So so just thinking about, um, I guess, uh, the, the conceptual, the abstract projects in general, Blake, what do you think? In the portfolio or out of the portfolio? Oh, man, this gets tough. If you already got solid stuff, I wouldn't put it in. That's that's just my take because what I'm what I'm assuming and hoping is if you do have stuff already in your portfolio, it should be exemplifying how you think and approach the world anyhow. And if it doesn't, go figure out how to make it do that. Um, abstract things are great, and if you think that it over and above another piece on there uh, really you know speaks to your your skill set or like what you want to do, totally. But I th- I think you want from like the hiring side of things, they only have so much time to review your portfolio. So whatever you've got on there needs to be your best stuff and it needs to be what you want them to look at. Cause you may only have one shot at, a, at one project. You may only get, you know, a glance at what you have in totality. So it, it comes down to really what you think your best work is. Um, if it's the abstract work, sweet, throw it on there. If it's not, leave it out. Yes. I agree with that. I think um, it it goes a long way to show variety uh, and flexibility with projects. Um, and it does come down to what level of work you put into it, right? Like Blake said, if this is one of your most proudest pieces that you can talk to and explain at length um, and really just get into your process, then include it. But if it's if there's other stuff, that has real world applications that you can talk to just as much. And you're just as excited about, I would put those in over this. Um, yeah, I agree that, that having, um, examples that have those real world ties or the examples that, um, have some sort of tangible outcome. Uh, those are the ones that are, uh, I don't know, evaluated, uh, or judged against a little, um, that's the word I'm looking for. Like they, they, they have more credence because something came out of them versus like this abstract project. Well, what came of it? Well, it was just an exercise I did for a class. So I didn't really, you know, there's nothing, nothing that came from it. So that's kind of where mine's at. My mind's at, but you know, if it's, if it's something that you're super passionate about, then put it in. I don't know if you can talk to it, you know? Yeah. To give like a real world example that's happened multiple times for me. Um, this is, related to my experience working with a UX bootcamp called Design Lab, where I help people put together their portfolio pieces in which they have the capability to do projects that are put together as a part of a curriculum or go outside of the curriculum and work with other companies or friends to develop you know, websites or applications. I always push for my students to go and work with you know, a family member or a friend that has a business or go find a nonprofit because you can end up with a tangible product that's out there yep. in the world. I can't tell you the amount of times that awesome designers and great thinkers have gotten through interviews at big companies and like, hey, your stuff is great, but I want to see something that's deployed. And if you've only kind of like followed the the structured curriculum or only are showing kind of like abstract case studies or thought experiments, that can it can lose you the the opportunity over somebody else who has like a website that's out there or whatever it may be. So again, it's 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 considering how you can speak to these things. Like if you could tell me an awesome, compelling story about why this abstract prop or abstract thing that you did is meaningful. That could change the game entirely, but I think from like a playing the numbers standpoint, most hiring managers are going to ask to see if there's something that's out there in the world and the impact that you had. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's get out of here. Uh, if you're if you're watching, stick around. We have a post show uh, for everyone else. Let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. You can join us or join the discussion on our Slack, or like I said, we're streaming now, so you can chat with us there. Uh, follow us all over our social channels at H Factors Podcast can do you can email us uh at uh, humanfactorscast at gmail.com if you like what you hear you want to support the show there's a couple ways you can do that one um wherever you're watching listening whatever you can like subscribe do the follow thing no i'm serious that really helps out with the show like is and it's free for you to do um two if you want to get a little bit more involved and help us out a little bit more you can write us a review on your podcast medium of choice three this is uh if you want to give us money you can do that you can support us on patreon and we'll give back to you for doing so uh, and so 
you know, you can always reach us at our home on the web, uh, humanfactorscast.com. Uh, I want to thank Mr. Blake Armstrong for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want valuable research and career advice? You guys can always find me anywhere across social media at Don't Panic UX. That's the best way to kind of get in touch with me and go through that kind of stuff. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Till next time. It depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.